Chapter One of The Ghost of Gear House by Charles Willing Beale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Roger Moline. The Ghost of Gear House by Charles Willing Beale. Chapter One. When Mr. Henley reached his dingy little house in 20th Street, a servant met him at the door with a letter, saying, "'The postman has just left it, sir, and hopes it is right, as it has given him a lot of trouble.' Mr. Henley examined the letter with curiosity. There were several erased addresses. The original was, "'Mr. P. Henley, New York City.' Scarcely legible in the lower left-hand corner was, Dead. Try Paul, number so-and-so, West 20th. Being unfamiliar with the handwriting, Mr. Henley carried the letter to his room. It was nearly dark, and he lighted the gas, exchanged the coat he had been wearing for a gaudy smoking jacket, glancing momentarily at the mirror, at a young and gentlemanly face with good features complexion rather florid, hair and mustache neither fair nor dark, with reddish lights. Seating himself upon a table directly under the gas, he proceeded with the letter. Evidently the document was not intended for him, but it proved sufficiently interesting to hold his attention. Gear House, 16th September, 1893. My dear Mr. Henley, Although we have never met, I feel sure that you are the man for whom I am looking, which conclusion has been reached after carefully considering your letters. Why have I taken so long to decide? Perhaps I can answer that better when we meet. Do not forget that the name of our station is the same as that of the house, Gear. Take the evening train from New York, and you will be with us in Old Virginia next day not twenty-four hours. I shall meet you at the station, where I shall go every day for a month, or until you come. You will know me because, well, because I shall probably be the only girl there, and because I drive a piebald horse in a cart with red wheels. But how shall I know you? Suppose you carry a red handkerchief in your hand as you step upon the platform. Yes, that will do famously. I shall look for the red silk handkerchief, while you look for the cart with gory wheels and a calico horse. What a clever idea! But how absurd to take precautions in such a desolate country as this! I shall know you as the only man stopping at Gears, and you will know me as the only woman in sight." Of course you will be our guest until you have proved all things to your satisfaction, and don't forget that I shall be looking for you each day until I see you. Meanwhile, believe me, sincerely yours, Dorothy Gear. Devilish strange letter, said Henley, turning the sheet over in an effort to identify the writer. But it was useless. Dorothy Gear was as complete a myth as the individual for whom her letter was intended. Oddly enough, 
The man's last name, as well as the initial of his first, were the same as his own. But whether the P stood for Peter, Paul, or Philip, Mr. Henley knew not, the only evident fact being that the letter was not intended for himself. Reading the mysterious communication once more, the young man smiled. Who was Dorothy Gear? Of course she was Dorothy Gear, but what was she like? At one moment he pictured her as a charming girl, where curls, giggles, and blushes were strangely intermingled with moonlight walks, rope ladders, and elopements. At the next, as some monstrous female agitator, a leader of anarchists and nihilistic organizations, loaded with insurrectionary documents for the destruction of society. But the author was inclined to playfulness, incompatible with such a character. He preferred the former picture, and throwing back his head while watching the smoke from his cigarette curl upward toward the ceiling, Mr. Paul Henley suddenly became convulsed with laughter. He had conceived the idea of impersonating the original Henley, the man for whom the letter had been written. The more he considered the scheme, the more fascinating it became. The girl, if girl she were, confessed to never having met the man, she would therefore be the more easily deceived. But she was expecting him daily and should not be disappointed. Love of adventure invested the project with an irresistible charm, and Mr. Henley determined to undertake the journey and play the part for all he was worth. It is true that visions of embarrassing complications occasionally presented themselves, but were dismissed as trifles unworthy of consideration. It was still early in October, while Miss Gear's communication had been dated nearly three weeks before. Had she kept her word? Had she driven to the station every day during those weeks? Mr. Henley jumped down from the table, exclaiming, "'Yes, Miss Dorothy, I will be with you at once, or as soon as the Southern Express can carry me.' A moment later he added, but I shall glance out of the car window first, and if I don't like your looks, or if you are not on hand, why in that event I shall simply continue my journey, see? But another question presented itself. Where was Gear Station? The lady had mentioned neither county nor county town, evidently taking it for granted that the right Henley knew all about it, which he doubtless did. But, since he was dead, it was awkward to consult him, especially about a matter which was manifestly a private affair of his own. But where was Gear? In all the vast state of Virginia, how was he to discover an insignificant station, doubtless unknown to New York ticket agents, and perhaps not even familiar to those living within twenty miles of it? Paul opened the atlas at the Old Dominion and threw it down again in disgust. "'A map of the infernal regions would be as useful,' he declared. However important gear might be to the gears, it was clearly of no importance to the world. But the following day the postal guide revealed the secret, and the railway officials confirmed and located it. 
Gear was situated in a remote part of the state, upon an obscure road, far removed from any of the trunk lines. Mr. Henley purchased his ticket, resolved to take the first train for this terra incognita of Virginia. The train drew up at the station. Yes, there was a piebald horse, and there was the cart with the gory wheels, and there, yes, certainly, there was Dorothy, a slender, nervous-looking girl of twenty, standing at the horse's head. Be she what she might, politically, socially, or morally, Mr. Henley decided at the first glance that she would do. With a flourish of his crimson handkerchief, he stepped out upon the platform. "'Rash man, you have put your foot in it,' he soliloquized. "'And you may never, never be able to take it out again.' But he could as soon have passed the open doors of paradise unheeded as Dorothy Gear at that moment. "'Mr. Henley, so glad,' said the girl, in recognition of the young man's hesitating and somewhat prolonged bow. "'He's a little afraid of the engine,' she continued, alluding now to the horse. "'So if you will jump in and take the reins while I hold his head—' Paul tossed in his bag and satchels, and then, jumping in himself, gathered up the reins, while the girl stood at the animal's head. Although Mr. Henley had hoped to find an attractive young woman awaiting him at the station— he was surprised to discover that his most sanguine expectations were exceeded. Here was no blue-stocking or agitator or superannuated spinster, but a graceful young woman, rather tall and slight, with blue eyes, set with dark lashes that intensified their color. Her complexion, although slightly freckled, charmed by its wholesomeness, and her hair, which shone both dark and red, according as the light fell upon it, seemed almost too heavy for the delicate head and neck that supported it. Although not strictly beautiful, she had one of those intelligent and responsive faces that are often more attractive than mere perfection of feature and form. "'It does seem funny that you are here at last,' she said, when seated beside him with the reins in her hand. "'It does indeed,' answered Paul, with a suspicion that he was a villain and ought to be kicked. For a moment he scowled and bit his mustache, hesitating whether to make a clean breast of the deception or continue in the role he had assumed. Alas, it was no longer of his choosing.' He had commenced with a lie which he now found it impossible to repudiate. No, he could not insult this girl by telling her the truth. That surely was out of the question. Miss Gear touched the horse with the whip, and the station was soon out of sight. They ascended a long hill with gullies, bordered by worm fences and half-cultivated fields, such improvements as there were appeared in a state of decay, and so far as Henley could see, the country was uninhabited. Presently the road entered a wood and became carpeted with pine tags, over which they trotted noiselessly. Where were they going? Dorothy had not spoken since starting, 
and Paul was too much disconcerted to continue the conversation. He hoped she would speak first, and yet dreaded anything which it seemed at all probable she would say. The novelty was intense, but the agony was growing. At last, without looking at him, she said, "'You haven't told me why you never answered my last letter. You know we have been expecting you for ages.' Paul coughed, hesitated, and then resolved to tell a part of the truth, which is often more misleading than the blackest lie. "'I... I did not get it,' he answered, "'until a day or two ago.' Miss Dorothy looked surprised. "'Strange,' she said. "'But, after all, I had my misgivings, for I never could believe that a letter like that would reach its destination.' "'But you know you told me—' "'Yes, I know I did,' interrupted Paul. "'You were perfectly right. "'You see, I got it at last, and all's well that ends well.' "'Not necessarily, because if you are as careless about other matters as this, "'why, I may have—that is, we may have to part before really knowing each other. "'And do you know, I should be awfully sorry for that.' Although she laughed a quick, nervous laugh, the words were uttered as if really meant. Paul suffered and tried to think of something noncommittal, something which, while not exposing his ignorance of the real Henley's business, might induce the girl to explain the situation. But no leading question presented itself. He thought he could be happy if he could but divert the conversation from its present awkward drift. There was a quaintness about the young lady's costume that reminded Henley of an old portrait. Evidently her attire had been modeled after that of some remote ancestor, but it was picturesque and singularly becoming, and Paul found it difficult to avoid staring in open admiration. Inwardly he concluded that she was a stunner, but in no ordinary sense. And despite the novel and somewhat embarrassing situation, he was conscious of a fascination not clearly accounted for. Thoughts of the defunct Henley, with his store of inaccessible knowledge, were discouraging. But then the memory of the girl's smiles was reassuring, and, come what might, Paul determined to represent his namesake as creditably as possible. The loneliness of the country road begot a spirit of confidence, so that Miss Gear soon appeared in the light of an old friend, to deceive whom was sacrilege. Mr. Henley realized the enormity of his conduct each time he glanced at her pretty face, but had not the courage to undeceive her. And why should he? Was not Dorothy happy? Would it be right, he argued, to upset the girl's tranquillity for a whim, for a scruple of his own, which had come too late, and which, for his as well as the girl's peace of mind, had better not have come at all? No, he would continue as he had begun. Doubtless he would be discovered ere long, but would not anticipate the event. The forest was beginning to take on its autumnal tints, but Mr. Henley's conscience barred his thorough enjoyment of the scene. 
they followed the bank of a brook where wild ivy and rhododendrons clustered. They climbed steep places and descended others, and crossed a little river where rocks and a rushing torrent made the ford seem dangerous. It was lonely, but exquisitely beautiful, and the mountain ridges closed about them on every hand. The twilight was rapidly giving way to the soft illumination of a full moon, and it was not until Paul noticed this that he began to ask himself, "'Where are we going?' He could not put the question to the girl and expose his ignorance of a matter which he might reasonably be supposed to know. After a prolonged silence, Henley ventured to observe that he had never been in the state of Virginia before, hoping that the remark might lead to some information from his driver. But she only looked at him with a wondering expression, and after a minute, with eyebrows lifted, said, "'And I have never been out of it.' Paul would have liked to pursue the conversation, but did not know how to do it. So far from gaining any information, he felt that he was sinking deeper in the mire. After all, he reflected, there are worse things in life than being run away with by a pretty girl, even if one doesn't happen to know exactly where she is taking him, and even if she doesn't happen to know exactly whom she is taking. He stretched out his feet and leaned back, resigned to his fate. Not a house had been passed in more than a mile. The road was deserted, and Paul's interest in future development steadily growing. Suddenly there came a terrible crash, and Mr. Henley's side of the cart collapsed. Dorothy drew up the horse and exclaimed, "'There! It is the spring! I was afraid it would break!' "'Too much weight on my side, Miss Gear,' said Paul, jumping to the ground. "'It is not that. It was weak, and I should have remembered to place your luggage on my side. It is too unfortunate.' "'What are we to do?' inquired Henley. "'It is difficult to say. We are miles from home, and the road is rough.' She was examining the broken spring by the uncertain light, and seemed perplexed. "'Can I not lead the horse while we walk?' suggested Paul. "'We could, but the brake is too bad. I fear the body of the cart will fall from the axle. But stop, there is one thing I can do. There is a smith about half a mile from here, upon another road.' which leaves this about a hundred yards ahead. I will drive on alone to the shop, and although it is late, I feel sure the man will do the work for me. You, Mr. Henley, will wait here for the stage, which will be due directly. Tell the driver to put you off at the gear road, where you can wait until I come along to pick you up. The distance is not great, and I will follow as quickly as possible. She was off before he had time to answer, leaving him standing by the roadside, waiting for the promised coach. It was not long before the rumbling of a heavy vehicle was heard, 
and but a few minutes more when an antiquated stage with four scrubby horses emerged from the shadow of a giant oak into the open moonlight, scarce fifty yards away. Mr. Henley hailed the driver, who stopped, and looked at him as if frightened. The man was a negro, and when convinced that it was nothing more terrible than a human being who had accosted him, smiled generously and invited him to a seat on the box. "'I allowed you as a haunt,' observed the man, by way of opening the conversation, when Paul had handed up his bags and taken his place on top. Henley lighted a cigar and the cumbersome old vehicle moved slowly forward. Their way now lay through a beautiful valley, beside a picturesque stream, tunneling its course through wild ivy and magnificent banks of calmia, and under the wide-spreading limbs of pines and hemlocks. The country appeared to be a wilderness, and Paul could not help feeling that the real world of flesh and ambition lay upon the other side of the ridge, now far behind. The night was superb, but the road rough, so that the horses seldom went out of a walk. Presently the driver drew up his animals for water, and Henley took the opportunity to question him. "'Do you know these gears where I am going?' he inquired. The man paused in the act of dipping a pail of water and seemed puzzled. Thinking he had not understood, Paul repeated the question, when the man dropped the bucket and, staring at him with a look of horror, said, "'Boss, is you in an earnest?' Henley laughed and told him that he thought he was, adding that Miss Gear was a friend of his. "'Now I knows you uns is jokin', cause they ain't got no friends in this here country.' "'But I am a stranger,' argued Paul. "'Well, sir, it ain't for the likes of me to argify with you uns, but if you wants to know where the house is, I can show it to you. Leastways, I can show you the road to get there. That's it. But tell me, don't the people about here like the gears? Boss, if there's friends of yearn, I reckon you knows all about em. Maybe more'n I can tell you. And I reckon it's safest for me to keep my mouth shut tight. Why so? Explain. Surely Miss Gear is a very charming young lady. I reckon she be, boss. Though for my part I ain't never seen her. Folks says as how it ain't good luck when she troubles on the road. What do you mean? Are any of her people accused of crime? Not as I ever heard on, sir. Then explain yourself. Speak but not another word was to be gotten out of the man. He was like one grown suddenly dumb, save for the power of an occasional shout to his horses. A mile beyond this the driver drew up his team, and turning abruptly, said, "'You see that path?' After peering doubtfully through the moonlight into the black shadows beyond, Paul thought he discerned the outline of a narrow wood road, and placing a tip in the man's hand, picked up his satchel and climbed down to the ground. 
"'Thank you, sir, and the Lord take care of you when you gets to the gears,' called the driver, as he cracked his whip and drove away, leaving Mr. Henley standing by the roadside listening to the retreating wheels of the coach. The forest was dense, and the moonlight, struggling through the treetops, fell upon the ground in patches, adding to the obscurity. Henley seated himself upon a fallen tree to await the arrival of the cart. Although quite as courageous as the average of men, he could not help a slight feeling of apprehension concerning the outcome of his enterprise. Of course, he knew nothing about these people, but the girl was prepossessing and refined to an unusual degree. It seemed impossible that she could be acting as a decoy for unworthy ends. He laughed at the thought, and at the fun he would some day have in recounting his fears to her, and at her imaginary explanation of the driver's silly talk. At the same time he examined his revolver, which he kept well concealed, despite the law, in the depths of a convenient pocket. When twenty minutes had passed he began to grow impatient for the girl's arrival, and when half an hour was up, started down the road to meet her. Scarcely had he done so when the sound of approaching wheels greeted his ears, and directly after Miss Gear was in full view. "'I hope you have been successful,' Paul asked as she drew up beside him. "'Quite,' answered the girl. "'Indeed, they put in a new spring for me, and we can now drive home without fear.' "'Do you know, I have been half-frightened,' said Paul, climbing into the cart beside her. "'And about what, pray?' "'Absurd nonsense, of course. But the old man who drove the coach talked the most idiotic stuff when I asked him about your people. Indeed, from his manner, I believe he was afraid of you.' Miss Gear did not laugh, nor seem in the least surprised. She only drew a long breath and said, "'Very likely.' "'But why should he be?' persisted Henley. "'It does seem strange,' said the girl pathetically, "'but many people are.' "'I am sure I should never be afraid of you,' added Paul confidentially. "'I hope not. And am I anything like what you expected?' she asked with languid interest. "'Well, hardly. At least you are better than I expected. I mean, that you are better looking, you know.' He laughed, but the girl was silent. There was nothing trivial in her manner, and she drove on for some minutes, devoting herself to the horse and a careful scrutiny of the road, whose shadows, ruts, and stones required constant attention. Presently, in an open space, bathed in a flood of moonlight, she turned toward him and said, "'I cannot reciprocate, Mr. Henley, by saying that you are better than I expected, for I expected a great deal. I also expected to like you immensely.' "'Which I hope you will promptly conclude to do,' Paul added, with a twinkle in his eyes, which was lost on his companion." in her endeavor to urge the horse into a trot. "'No,' 
she presently answered, I can conclude nothing, for I like you already, and quite as well as I anticipated. I'm awfully glad, said Henley awkwardly, and hope I'll answer the purpose for which I was wanted. To be sure you will. Do you think that I should be bringing you back with me if I were not quite sure of it? He had hoped for a different answer, one which might throw some light upon the situation, but the girl was again quiet and introspective, without affording the slightest clue to her thoughts. How did it happen that he had proved so entirely satisfactory? Perhaps, then, after all, the original Henley was not so important a personage as he had imagined. But Paul scarcely hoped that his identity would remain undiscovered after arriving at the young lady's home. Then, indeed, he might expect to be thrown upon his mettle to make things satisfactory to the gears. They had been jogging along for half a mile, when, turning suddenly through an open gateway, they entered a private approach. Paul exclaimed in admiration, for the road was tunneled through such a dense growth of evergreens that the far-reaching limbs of the cedars and spruce pines brushed the cart as they passed. "'Romantic!' Henley exclaimed, standing up in the vehicle to hold a branch above the girl's head as she drove under it. The little horse tossed the limbs right and left as he burrowed his way amongst them. "'Wait until you know us better,' said Dorothy, dodging a hemlock bough. "'You might even come to think that several other improvements could be made beside the trimming out of this avenue. But Ah Ben would as soon cut off his head as disturb a single twig.' "'Who?' inquired Paul. "'Ah Ben!' Mr. Henley concluded not to push his investigations any further for the present, taking refuge in the thought that all things come to him who waits. He had no doubt that Ah Ben would come along with the rest. A sudden turn and an old house stood before them. It was built of black stones, rough as when dug from the ground more than a century before. At the farther end was a tower with an open belfry, choked in a tangle of vines and bushes, within which the bell was dimly visible through a crust of spider's webs and bird's nests. Patches of moss and vegetable mold relieved the blackness of the stones, and a venerable ivy plant clung like a rotten fish net to the wall. It was a weird yet fascinating picture, for the house, like a rocky cliff, looked as if it had grown where it stood. Parts of the building were crumbling, and decay had laid its hand more or less heavily upon the greater part of the structure. All this in the mellow light of the moon and under the peculiar circumstances made a scene which was deeply impressive. "'This is Gear House,' said Dorothy, drawing up before the door. "'Now don't tell me how you like it, because you don't know. You must wait until you have seen it by daylight.' She threw the reins to a stupid-looking servant, who took them as if not quite knowing why he did so. 
she then made a signal to him with her hands and jumped lightly to the ground. "'Down, Beelzebub!' called Dorothy to a huge dog that had come out to meet them, while the next instant she was engaged in exchanging signals with the servant, who immediately led the horse away, followed by the dog. "'Why does the boy not speak?' inquired Paul, considerably puzzled by what he had seen. "'Because he is dumb,' answered the girl, leading the way up to the door. Paul carried his luggage into the porch, where he saw that Dorothy's eyes were fixed upon him, with that strange, quizzo-critical gaze, with lids half-closed and head tilted, which he had observed once before, and which he could not help thinking gave her a very aristocratic bearing. "'You should carry one of those long-handled lorgnettes,' he suggested, when you look that way. "'And why?' she asked, quite innocently. "'To look at me with,' answered Henley, hoping to induce a smile, or a more cheery tone amid a gloom which was growing oppressive. But Miss Gear simply led the way to the great hall door, which was built of heavy timber, and studded with nail-heads without. As the cumbersome old portal swung open, Paul could not help observing that it was at least two inches thick, braced diagonally, and that the locks and hinges were unusually crude and massive. He followed Miss Gear into the hall, with a slight foreboding of evil, which the memory of the stage-driver's remark did not help to dispel. End of chapter 1 Recording by Roger Moline